You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, Moxie LaBouche voiceovers, and the Your Brain on Facts merch store. I've just put up a t-shirt design that I'm really proud of. You can check it out at yourbrainonfacts.com merch. It was an ambitious project that, though it failed, would become part of the iconography of a decade. In September 1991, the first long-term residents moved in to Biosphere 2, a three-acre vivarium built to be an artificial, materially closed ecological system, Biosphere 1 being the Earth itself. A Texas oil billionaire funded it to study how people might one day be able to manage a self-sustaining ecosystem for life on Mars. It proved to be a lot harder in practice than it was on paper. The oxygen levels would drop too low. The crew didn't really know how to grow crops for food. Their pollinators soon died out. And the ants moved in. Not just any ants, crazy ants. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. They go marching two by two. They're the subject of two CGI movies from 1998, and a picnic wouldn't be complete without them. Today, we're talking about ants. This topic comes to you by popular demand. Two social media comments and an email. That's a new record. So thanks to Rachel, A. Prodigious, and Kate from Strange Animals Podcast. We really should think about ants more often than we do, considering how many of them there are. I've often enjoyed dropping the fact that the ant population is equal to the human population by weight. But is it? The claim comes from the 1994 book Journey to the Ants by a Harvard University professor and a German biologist. They based their estimate on the estimate of a British entomologist who calculated that the number of insects alive on Earth at any given moment was one million trillion. If ants make up 1% of the insect world, that's 10,000 trillion. According to the book, Individual workers weigh on average between 1 to 5 milligrams, according to the species. When combined, all ants in the world taken together weigh about as much as all human beings. So if you were going to play on a seesaw with a bunch of ants, you would need about a million of them on the other end to balance you out. Assuming you weigh 62 kilos or about 137 pounds, which I will tell you, I don't. With around 13,000 ant species worldwide, there comes a lot of variety. They range from as small as less than one millimeter long to over 50 millimeters or two inches. That's the aptly named Titanomyrma giganti. So weights vary too, but experts seem to agree the average weight of an ant is less than 10 milligrams. But even among experts, no one really knows how many ants there are in the world. A BBC documentary claims there are not 10 trillion ants, but 100 trillion, though it still suggests that the total weight of the ants equals the total weight of humans. Even by the author's own math, their calculations are wrong. If we estimate that the 7.2 billion humans on the planet weigh a combined 332 billion kilos or 366 million tons, and 10,000 trillion ants weighing an average of 4 milligrams each, we get only 40 billion kilos, or 44 million tons, or about 
nine pounds of human for every pound of ants. Even if we allow for the smaller human population in 1994 and the smaller humans, it's still back of napkin math at best. One expert does say that the numbers might have been accurate at one time, probably about 250 years ago. We must also remember that humans are getting fatter all the time. We're not just increasing in population; we're increasing in fatness. So I think we've left the ants behind. Another way to try to wrap your head around how many ants there are is to look at the biomass of them. One of my favorite weird history and animated rant YouTube channels, Sam Onella, compared the biomass of several animals and visualized them as spheres, literal animal planets. For example, if all the blue whales in the world could be mushed together like Play-Doh, they'd make a spheroid about 140 meters or 450 feet across. Blue whales are huge, but there aren't very many of them. In contrast, the chicken planet is more than twice that size, 330 meters or 1,100 feet across. They're small, but we've bred a lot of them. The math was tricky enough, what with trying to come up with a density for each animal. But Sam also found order of magnitude disparities in the estimates of ant populations. Taking the average of the estimates. The ant planet came to 420 meters or 1,400 feet across, nearly as tall as the Empire State Building, putting it between the biomass of horses and sheep. So, if your four-year-old asks you how many ants there are in the world, you can come back with the question by weight or by mass. Bonus fact: Sam estimated the closest animal biomass planet to humans is the planet of krill. Which are individually barely two inches long, so you know there are a lot of them. Like bees, life in an ant colony revolves around the queen, who starts life the same as any other larva, but is fed a special diet by the all-female workforce that turn her into an egg-laying machine. Male ants are pretty much just a sperm delivery service, dying after mating at about a week old, while the queen can live for years. But what's fascinating about them is that they have a mother, but no father. Rather than having an X and Y chromosome, an ant's gender is determined by whether they have one or two copies of their genome. Female ants develop from fertilized eggs with two genome copies: one from the mother and one from the father. Male ants develop from unfertilized eggs, so they have no genome from a father. This means that male ants don't have a father and cannot have sons, but they do have grandfathers and can have grandsons. Try dropping that little fact in your next Zoom meeting while you wait for everyone to figure out how their mics work. We think of ant colonies as individual communities, self-contained and not interacting with other colonies. But sometimes neighboring colonies of the same species can link up to work cooperatively. There is a super colony of millions of cooperating nests of billions of Argentine ants that spans over 3,700 miles or 6,000 kilometers of European coastline from Italy to northwest Spain. And you thought the way they took over that corner of your yard was impressive. And that's not the only Argentine ant super colony, though. Not only do they have the world's largest super colonies in such far-flung places as Japan, California, and Europe, 
those are actually all part of the same global megacolony. Large and highly adaptable, Argentine ants are incredibly successful at driving off competition. No other ant can beat them in a straight fight, except one. Recent research indicates that another invasive species, the Asian needle ant, Pachycondyla chinensis, is taking territory away from the Argentine ant. This is the first time Argentine ants have been observed losing territory. So what is the needle ant doing that other species fail to do? Scientists aren't quite sure. They know that Argentine ants seem to actively avoid the needle ants, but they don't know why. Asian needle ants have an advantage over Argentines because they can tolerate colder weather better, giving them more of the year to build nests, mate, and eat other ants, as needle ants are wont to do. While at first blush, you'd think it was a good thing someone could take a bite out of the reigning champion, that comes at a price. Needle ants have a painful sting that can cause allergic reactions, and you're actually more likely to have an allergic reaction to an Asian needle ant sting than a honeybee. Bonus fact, more people in Australia are treated for anaphylaxis from the deceptively cutely named jack jumper ant than they are from bee stings. Ants have a major influence on ecosystems worldwide, dispersing seeds, pollinating plants, and improving the quality of soil. The power to make a difference in one's environment cuts both ways, though. Fire ants cause over $4 billion with a B dollars worth of damage in the U.S. every year. That includes both crop damage as well as veterinary and doctor bills from running afoul of their nest and being bitten and stung. Fire ants aren't even native to North America. They were accidentally imported from South America sometime in the 1930s through the port of Mobile, Alabama. Probably they came over in the soil used as ship's ballast, the weight in the bottom of the boat that helps it stay upright. And they've been spreading ever since. Their introduction wasn't the last time fire ants traveled by water, though. Their habitat, along the southern third of the country, overlaps with the areas prone to hurricanes and flooding map. When colonies are flooded out, the ants band together into a flat mass that floats until they reach high ground or bump into a tree they can climb. The raft carries all members of the colony, including the eggs, larvae, queen, winged ants, and workers, according to Texas A&M University. Rafts save the ants, but they make a bad situation worse for humans trying to rescue other humans in a flood. If the raft comes into contact with a boat, it will break up as the fire ants climb aboard and immediately start biting the hell out of anyone there. Texas A&M warns, It's important to rub them off immediately. Submerging them won't work as they'll just cling to the skin. Even a high-pressure water spray might not remove them. Yep, everybody gangster till the ant raft floats toward you. Thankfully, though, these days we're safe at home, far from floating fire ants. And a number of people have chosen to curl up with the Your Brain on Facts book. Thank you to everyone who has been leaving reviews, and if you've been thinking about it and meaning to do it, no time like the present. Like this review from KKSF, five stars, fun and entertainment. Everyone could use some non-television-related entertainment now, and that's where Moxie and Your Brain on Facts come in. 
Use your brain and enjoy yourself with her wonderful stories, factoids, and amazing knowledge and trivia. Fun for the whole family without any screen time. Thank you so much for that. And if you want to hear your opinion read out on the show, rate the book over on Amazon, though maybe buy it from bookshop.org so it goes to a local bookstore, or rate the show on your podcast player of choice or podchaser.com, which is like the IMDb of podcasts, just like Mage Matthew did when he left a five-star review. Great podcast. Really enjoying this podcast. Well-voiced and interesting facts. So thank you for that, Mage Matthew up in Canada, just in case you got confused with the other Mage Matthews out there. And do forgive me if I accidentally skip anyone's reviews. I am not at all good at keeping notes about which reviews I've read and which ones I haven't. Definitely a growth opportunity area for me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Ants do some pretty remarkable things to protect the colony. Take the ant whose name is also a spoiler for this topic, Colobopsis explodens. They make their homes in the tall canopies of trees in Southeast Asia, which they defend with a move called autothesis, from the Greek words for self and sacrifice. The way they sacrifice themselves is something unique to only a few species of ants and termites. They blow themselves up. Formerly called yellow goo ants after the brightly colored gunk that's left over, exploding ants respond to threats by deliberately and fatally rupturing their body, splattering rivals with a toxic fluid. Many animals engage in chemical warfare, from cobra venom to skunk spray to the heated poison shot out by the bombardier beetle. But these 15 or so species of ant are the only animals that have to kill themselves to do so. Researchers noted that C. explodens ants were, quote, particularly prone to self-sacrifice in the presence of threats, including humans trying to study them. When another insect gets into the nest, C. explodens workers will bite onto it, then curve their body toward it as if they had a stinger. To blow themselves up, the workers contract part of their abdomen called the gaster, so tightly that it ruptures, spewing forth a yellow glandular secretion, 
which either kills the enemy stone dead with a toxicity or immobilizes them with its stickiness. Not all sea explodents go to such extremes for the greater good. Some play more defense and less kamikaze offense. All they do is shut the door. And by the door, I mean their head. It's a tactic seen in a few other species, including two recently discovered in Africa. Prior to that, Africa was thought to only have one example of a doorhead ant in the whole of the continent. And even then, scientists weren't sure if they were looking at a specialized caste or a separate species. But what do I mean by doorhead ant? Exactly how it sounds. The heads of cephalote ants are large and flat, like the world's most conspicuous buzz-cut haircut. They're the ideal shape for living in the tunnels left by beetles boring through tree trunks. This real estate is in high demand, though. Other ants and parasites like forid flies, who lay their eggs in the ants, want to move in, too. And they're not interested in making an offer. Tunnels are hard to fight in, all narrow and cramped, and it limits the number of defenders who can reach the attackers. So, best they not get in at all. The doorheads might be camouflaged, hiding in plain sight, ready to spring into action. Depending on the species, pores on their heads secrete tangled fibers that resemble fungi, or they catch forest debris with small hairs like Velcro. Then, with their decorated heads in the openings, the nest is harder to find in the first place. The ants prefer this strategy to fighting, since cephalote ants aren't the most formidable combatants once their armored walls have been breached. The doorheads are devoted to their job. It's not uncommon to see doorheads with evidence of being bitten by would-be intruders when the doorhead wouldn't budge. One researcher confessed, I tried to see if I could dislodge one, if I could push it back. His forceps ended up puncturing the ant's head because it wouldn't budge. In his defense, though, the same researcher was also the one who noticed that when ants live in any one kind of hole, they grow their heads to fit that shape perfectly. Blocking entrances is just one of the talents of an ant with a head so big, they're called big-headed ants. One species, Phydole megacephala, side note, one of five ant species to appear on the top 100 worst invasive species list, also use their bloody big heads to grind seeds and smash up other ants. The size of their head actually corresponds to the severity of local competition. They grow heads three times larger in survival-challenging Australia compared to their easy-living cousins in Hawaii. They also have a unique rank in their caste system. So rare, only eight known species have it. After minor and major, they have super-major. The minors are workers, the majors are the soldiers with big heads, and the super-majors are the soldiers with the biggest heads of all. Scientists believe the capacity to create super-majors is a throwback mechanism dating back to their prehistoric ancestors between 35 and 60 million years ago. Speaking of dinosaur times, have you ever seen a dinosaur ant? Now, would that be an ant the size of a dinosaur or a regular-sized ant in the shape of a T-Rex? 
It's the old Venture Brothers ghost pirate versus pirate ghost semantics. Sadly, it's actually neither of those things. Dinopanera quadriceps are just big and beefy at over an inch long. They become interesting again when you learn that their colony doesn't have a queen, and every member can reproduce. How egalitarian. Instead of a queen, they have an alpha female, surrounded by up to five beta females, who do nothing all day but sit around waiting for the top spot to open up. Sometimes a beta gets tired of waiting and decides to start laying eggs of her own. If the alpha female detects that her position is being challenged, she wipes chemicals from her stinger onto the would-be usurper. This triggers the workers to punish the offending ant. If I had to work all day long every day, and you sit around waiting to inherit, I probably wouldn't even need a chemical marker to want to take you out. They pin the beta down and hold her there, sometimes for a few straight days. After the physical punishment is over, the beta is stripped of her rank, now just another lowly worker. Specialized jobs are as common in ants as having six legs, but there was one that stopped me in my tracks and made me go back to the script to include them. Ever been on a road trip and been the one in charge of handing out the sandwiches? In my family, back in the station wagon days, which lasted at least a decade too long, that was the price you paid if you wanted to sit in the way back. Anything to avoid being in the middle of the middle seat on top of the transmission hump. But the middle middle seat looks pretty good if being in charge of the food means storing it inside your body. Introducing the honeypot ant, whose species you can find in both North America and Australia. When food is plentiful, honeypot colonies select certain workers to be what entomologists call repletes and put them up in a safe spot. Then the feeding begins. The other workers stuff them with food until the repletes abdomens swell up like balloons. They can get as big as a grape. I know a grape is hardly a benchmark for largeness, but when you're an ant, that's one hell of a donk. When feast turns to famine, hungry workers go to the replete, give it a bit of a poke, and wait for calories to appear, courtesy of regurgitation. If the life of a replete still doesn't sound too bad, sometimes rival ant colonies invade and kidnap them. Honeypots aren't just vending machines for their mates. They're a sweet treat for indigenous people. Try some for yourself. First, locate a honeypot hill. Excavate it carefully and pick out some nice fat feeders. But just some of them. Be sure you leave some for the ants. And good news, you don't have to do anything to prepare them. Just pop them in your gob-like gushers. Want something more savory? Try the leafcutter ant of South America. They're eaten toasted and are said to have a nutty, bacon-like taste, at least according to the companies that sell them. For something more refreshing, how about the lemon ant of the Amazon, whose taste comes from the formic acid the ants produce? Formic acid is named for formica, the Latin word for ants, nothing to do with flooring. It's supposed to be a chemical defense, the formic acid. Too bad for them, we like the way it tastes. If you're ever in the Amazon, hacking your way through dense rainforest, and suddenly the trees are less dense, and the incredible variety of plants, flowers, and trees has turned into one kind of tree, the Doroya hirsuta, 
you know that lemon ants are nearby because you found a devil's garden. The hirsuta is the preferred habitat for lemon ants, or Ramelakaista shumani to give it its proper name. The locals believe that these spots are the work of an evil spirit called a chulachaki, while science has a few ideas of its own. One hypothesis is that the hirsuta trees release toxic secretions that kill competing plants, a process botanists call allelopathy. Others argue that it's actually the ants living on and in the tree that are responsible. The idea is that by killing other plants, the ants make room for new hirsuta saplings to grow, making more homes for the colony to expand into. The plants also benefit by increasing their biomass and eliminating competition. To test this hypothesis, researchers from Stanford located 10 devil's gardens and planted in the middle of them two Spanish cedar, one treated with a sticky insect barrier and the other left alone. They planted similar trees 150 yards away, still in the same forest but not in the devil's garden, for more data points. They didn't have to wait long for that data. Worker ants immediately attacked the untreated saplings by injecting formic acid into the leaves, costing the trees most of their leaves inside the week. The treated trees, the ones with the insect barrier, emerged unscathed. Well, they didn't emerge. They're trees. They just stand there. Unless there's an ant moot, then I don't know. Anyway, researchers now had some pretty conclusive proof that it was the lemon ants actively killing anything that might compete with their tree buddies. The Stanford team noted, To our knowledge, this is the first record of an ant using formic acid as an herbicide, although it is known to have bactericidal and fungicidal properties. Australia's come up a couple of times on today's episode, and it was also the setting for the most recent bonus mini-episode over on patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. That was bonus mini number 39, so there is a lot of content on there for members to enjoy. And this month's topic poll goes up shortly, so be looking for that at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Want to do something with your fellow brainiacs that doesn't cost anything? Head on over to facebook.com slash groups slash brainiac breakroom or reddit r slash yourbrainonfacts to post the thought-provoking or just plain silly stuff you find on the internet. It doesn't have to strictly be educational. By all means, post that predictive text game you just found on Facebook. Those are always good for a laugh. If you're still kicking around the jungles of Brazil, see if you can find any leaves that are hanging precisely 25 centimeters or 10 inches off the ground. If you turn it over, there's a chance you'll find a carpenter ant with his jaws clamped onto the leaf's central vein. But he's not there by choice. And in fact, he's long dead. Another victim of Orphea cordyceps unilateralis, the zombie ant fungus. If the scientific name gave you a little tickle of vague familiarity, perhaps you've played the video game The Last of Us, or read or watched The Girl with All the Gifts, which you absolutely should. O. unilateralis is those properties equivalent of the T-virus from Resident Evil. When the spores of this fungus infect a carpenter ant, it takes about a week for it to grow all throughout the squishy, soft ant body inside its exoskeleton armor. The fungus drains the ant of its nutrients and also takes over its mind. 
It compels the ant to leave the safety in numbers of the colony and climb a nearby plant. It stops the ant at that oddly specific 10-inch height, because that's where the temperature and humidity are optimum for the fungus to grow. To make sure the ant doesn't move, the fungus makes the ant lock its mandibles around the leaf. It's not long after that that the ant dies, and a long stalk begins to grow out of its head, a stipe topped with a capsule full of spores, ready to rain down more zombiehood on the colony. It's also taken over the mind of one David Hughes, an entomologist at Pennsylvania State University, who's been studying O. unilateralis for years. To really find out what makes it tick, he had a student, by dint of a special microscope, slice infected ants wafer-thin, each slice 50 nanometers thick. To give you a frame of reference there, a sheet of paper is 100,000 nanometers thick. So ant slices one two-thousandth the thickness of a piece of paper. Each slice was scanned and compiled into a 3D model, and annotations were made on which bits were ant and which bits were fungus. It took three months to mark up one muscle. No wonder he had a student do it. When the fungus first enters its host, it exists as single cells that float around the bloodstream, budding off new copies like bacterium myosing. At some point, these single cells start working together, connecting to one another with short tubes, such as are also seen in fungi that infect plants. This allows them to exchange nutrients and communicate. Those tubes are unique. There are other fungi that fatally infect ants, but O. unilateralis is the only one that messes with their minds, and Hughes believes these tubes are the key. They allow the fungus cells to be individuals but act in concert, like the hive mind of the ants they're infecting. From there, they invade the ants' muscles, either by penetrating the muscle cells or just squeezing in between them and growing there. What's perhaps most surprising from the mind-control fungus is that the ant's brain is the only part of its body that doesn't have fungus in it. Hughes' team found that fungal cells infiltrate the ant's entire body, including the head, but leave the brain untouched. Hughes thinks that the fungus exerts direct control over the ant's muscles, like tugging on the strings of a marionette. Once an infection takes hold, the ant's motor neurons, the ones that carry messages from the brain to the muscles, begin to die, and it's suspected the fungus takes over releasing chemicals that force the muscles to contract. So the poor little ant is probably still aware, but just along for the ride. Nobody said life as an ant was going to be pleasant. Just ask Cardiocondyla obscurer. Their colonies have a single dominant male called an ergotoid, and he is the very picture of territorial. If a new male comes a-wooing, the reigning ergotoid will dab chemicals from his anus onto the intruder. This dirty anches contains a kill scent, a pheromone that sets off the nearby workers who swarm and kill the interloper. On the domestic defense side, the ergotoid goes through the nursery chambers looking for day-old males to eliminate. 
He's got to get them before their exoskeletons fully harden. They're not just grappling, but trying to be the first one to get his kill scent onto the other one. A two-day-old has a 14% chance of winning. But there's a 43% chance that they both die, Superman and Doomsday style. Temnothorax pillagens, or pillage ants, are very small. They raid colonies of ants that are even smaller, an entire nest inside a single acorn. Like nature's Polly Pocket, if Polly had segmented eyes and antennae and was several hundred individuals. These little acorn fortresses only have one entrance, and the pillage ants walk right on in like they own the place. Nobody tries to fight them off. In fact, the acorn dwellers don't even notice them. Pillage ants use a chemical camouflage, like an olfactory Klingon bird of prey, or the cloak of invisibility, depending on your fandom. But it's not 100% foolproof. If the pillage ant is found out, stealth mode turns to melee, and they will stab their opponents in the neck with lethal, paralyzing venom. The acorn ants rarely, if ever, score a kill whereas the pillage ants can take out anywhere from 5 to 100% of the acorn ants. And that's especially impressive when you realize that pillage ants rarely send in more than four individuals at a time. The best name I found in my research would probably belong to the mirror turtle ant, and they wish they could do the no-smell-me thing. They follow hostile chromatogaster ampla ants to food, and start trying to act like them. Mirror turtle ants don't smell anything like sea ampla, so if they come within sniffing range, it's game over. They have to move like the enemy and walk like the enemy, all while not getting too close to them, even though they're in the midst of the enemy and stealing their food. Mirror turtle ants were the first species of ants documented to use visual mimicry to parasitize another ant species and all so they don't have to go through the effort of finding their own food. You've got to keep your eye out for Solenopsis fugax as well. S. fugax steals the larvae of other ants, not to create a workforce, as a number of ant species do, but as food. They also tend to and manage aphids to get the sweet liquid they excrete, called honeydew. So S. fugax is basically a baby-eating rancher baby-eating rancher from a heist movie or the cold open of James Bond. They tunnel into other nests, looking for the brood chamber, and when they find it, they discharge pheromones that repel the other ants for up to an hour. They gas the other ants and make off with the loot. And S. fugax aren't the only gas-attack ants. The African chromatogaster striatula specializes in hunting termites the mortal enemy of the ant for millennia. They have a potent poison which induces death seizures in termites. Rather than wasting time biting or stinging every single termite, they release this into the air as an aerosol spray to kill the termites from a distance. Basically, C. striatula is nerve-gassing their way to victory. This is where I'd make a pun about the Geneva Convention, but I couldn't think of any. If you can think of one, hit me on the social media, Facebook and Instagram slash your brain on facts and Twitter at brain on facts pod. When C. striatula encounters a termite, they raise their gaster, their back end in the air and point it at their prey. 
they must stretch before going into battle because they can point their gaster in almost any direction. This aerosol poison also protects them against other species of ants. Researchers have not recorded any of these ants dying because they're smart enough to turn around and run away. The termites, not so much. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. In the first year of Biosphere 2, no one ant species was dominant. In 1993, populations of Paratrichina longicornis, a.k.a. crazy ants, which had not been found in 1991 at all, had increased to extremely high levels. By 1996, virtually all the ants that could be observed, over 99%, were crazy ants. One possible reason the crazy ants were able to do so much better than their opponents in this closed environment is that they aren't harmed by inbreeding, so a captive population doesn't suffer from a lack of new blood. If you'd like to hear more about the failure of Biosphere 2, definitely at me on the social media for that. Remember, you can always find the sources and the script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And please, for me, for Mama Labouche, for everyone, stay home this Thanksgiving. I know it will be hard. I know it will be disappointing. I live three miles from my mother and I can't sit across the table from her and eat for fear of infecting her and her husband. Just let this missed Thanksgiving be a story you tell your future grandkids over nice, safe family dinners. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.